Psalms 127 and 128, hear the word of the Lord. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I'm always aware that when we come to texts like these texts that we've been looking at lately that have to do with relationships, that these texts can inspire on the one hand, and they certainly guide us, but they can also cause a great deal of pain. And and so I'm often aware that these, these sermons on relationships while they are to instruct and to guide and to help us in our relationships, they can also cause a great deal of, of pain and of longing and of, of lament and of grief in our lives. For example, when we talk about marriage, uh, those who are unmarried and would like to be married, that, that kind of a message can, can cause grief. For those who are married and aren't enjoying their marriage, when we talk about the beauty of marriage, they they might be increased in their, their, their lamenting their own, the condition of their own marriage. When we talk about uh, wives who respect their husbands, there may be husbands who long for respectful wives and, and wives who long for loving husbands. And when we talk about widowed people, there may be some missing their spouses or maybe feel feeling guilty because they don't miss their spouses. There are all sorts of situations that are stirred up in emotions Now we turn to children, and we turn to children at the risk both of being inspired and instructed and encouraged, but also of accentuating the pain of some, Uh, the the pain of those who would like to have children and cannot, either because of infertility or because they're simply not married and they're they're not able to, to have children at this point. Or adults who would really like to adopt, because but because adoption has become so expensive, it seems to be out of their reach. So what is our, our goal here? Or maybe, maybe when we talk about children, some will be grieving their wayward children. Or some will be grieving their deceased children. And so these, these are sensitive topics because they're about our vital human relationships. But what, what do we want to happen here? Well, the goal in this whole series is to learn God's design even though our situation in this fallen world doesn't and in some senses will never live up to God's original 
design. Well then, why talk about it? Because it remains the original design. It remains that towards which we are going. It remains the goal of redemption. It remains that which is our our focus and our goal, where we want to be more and more. But what about the pain that's stirred up? How do we deal with that and the, the longings and the laments and the grief? Well, here we, we of course, always need to recognize that, that we are walking in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world. And, and sin still affects us as well, even if we are believers in Jesus Christ. And so this, this, these feelings that are stirred up, uh, I hope of hope, but I'm sure also of grief, that, that these should drive us once again to God and to His grace, to look for contentment, to look for healing, and also look for increased increased work of God in our relationships that they might partake more and more of the original realities that God has designed for us. Now, we're looking at these two psalms today, and these are in the Psalms of Ascent, the Songs of Ascent, but these don't really look like they fit here as much as others do. Others of the songs of ascent are singing and they're celebrating their procession up to Jerusalem. These are more psalms, wisdom psalms. Psalms that that sound a lot more like the book of Proverbs than they do uh, the book of Psalms in some ways. And the first one, interestingly, is related somehow to Solomon. It says in in the title, now we don't know if these titles are original or not, but it says in the title, A Song of Ascents, of Solomon, or to Solomon, or about Solomon. That could be translated a number of different ways, and we don't know what its relationship to Solomon is, but if you know anything about Solomon, there are some themes in this this psalm which connect with the life of Solomon. It starts out with this idea of vanity. Does that sound familiar? If you've read the book of Ecclesiastes, it's all about vanity and purposelessness and uselessness. Also, we find here uh, other themes like building a house. What did Solomon do? He was the great house builder. He built the house of the Lord. Also, it refers to sleep. When did God appear to Solomon? He appeared to him in a dream when he was asleep. And also, it speaks of many children. And what did Solomon have, if nothing else? Uh, He had children, many children, because he had many women and went astray, therefore. Now, what I want you to do... As we go to these two psalms and putting them together, we find that together they have an interesting structure. Because they first talk about, the first psalm talks about society, and then it moves to family. And then the next psalm talks about family, and then moves back to society. So the first one starts in a a big picture, and then goes to the basis of that big picture, society, and then the building block of that big uh, picture, society, and then the next one starts with the family, the building block, and then it expands out to the society once again. So that's where we're going. And so what we have is society without God, the family a gift of God, the family happy before God, and then society favored by God. So we start with society without God, and we're moving towards society with God, under His favor, and the the linking point between society without God and society under God's favor is the family. And so we're going to see how this functions. Now, 
This is a different word when we start out verse, uh, chapter 20, uh, I'm sorry, Psalm 127, verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain. This is a different word than we find in Ecclesiastes, but it's basically synonymous. And it's about uselessness. It's about purposelessness. It's about that which doesn't amount to anything in the end. And the idea, basic idea here is similar to the idea in Ecclesiastes, and it's this. Human activity, human activity is ultimately useless apart from God's activity. Now, humans are to act. Humans are to act. We are commanded, we are given charges to act in this world, in all of our different spheres. We are to act... But God's activity is the deciding factor in our activities. And all of history, all of history confirms this fact, and our own lives confirm this fact as well, don't they? How many times have we attempted something? We've attempted something, we've tried, we've we've exerted all of our effort, and no matter how much effort we exert, it doesn't come to fruition. And so we realize that ultimately our activity is not the deciding factor. It is God's activity that decides. Now, the first activity here is the house. Unless the Lord builds the house, uh, those who build it labor in vain. And there may be some ambiguity in this use of the word house. It could be a physical structure that's in view, or it could be like we talk about the royal family of England, the House of Windsor. Well, we're talking about what? The, the clan, the family of Windsor. And, it, and we see that same thing, that same ambiguity. For example, if you go to Second Samuel chapter 7, David wants to build a what? House for the Lord. He wants to build a, a physical structure. And then God says, no, on the contrary, I'm going to build you a house, not a physical structure, but a dynasty, a family, a clan. And the first activity is this building the house. And the second activity is expanding from that. When you have uh, many houses together, what do we call that? We call that a town or a city. So when you have a house, it needs to be built. Then when you have many houses, they're already built. They need to be what? They need to be watched over. And it says, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. Unless the, the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. The, the builders need to build. The watchman needs to watch. But the results are in the hands of the Lord. There's an interesting, interesting historical account in Nehemiah. If you know the story of Nehemiah... Briefly, the people of God sinned against the Lord. The northern kingdom, the, 12, the ten tribes were sent into, basically dispersed among the nations. The two southern tribes, Judah, they were sent away to Babylon, brought back after 70 years, and Jerusalem was in ruins. They had to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the walls around it. That's what Nehemiah is about. It's the rebuilding of Jerusalem. But we find things like this, like Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 4. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. You can imagine one of the psalms that they would be singing would be what? Unless the Lord builds the house... Those who labor, labor in vain. And then if you go back to chapter 4 of Nehemiah, uh, verse 22 and 23, it says, 
I also said, Nehemiah, I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day, building by day, watching by night. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. So they did the building. They guarded the city, but they also recognized that unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen watch in vain. And in that case, the Lord did build and the Lord did watch. And when they finished the building and they finished the watching with enemies all around, they gave praise to the Lord not to the work of their own hands. They gave praise to the Lord because He was the one that enabled them to build. He was the one that enabled them to watch. Now the second verse expands this, this this idea of of not working in vain, and it expands it to, to a way that sounds very modern, doesn't it? It says, It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for He gives to His beloved... Sleep. That sounds very modern, doesn't it? It's a warning. It's a warning that no matter how much you work, no matter how many lunch breaks you skip, no matter how early you get up, no matter how late you stay up working, it is in vain unless the Lord is in your work. Unless it is done for Him. Unless it is done unto Him. Unless it is sustained by Him. Now, there's a, this last line is hard to translate. There are a number of suggestions here. This version says, He gives to His beloved sleep. It also could be translated, He gives to His beloved in sleep. That is to say, while they're sleeping. And the idea is, while you're sleeping, God's working. That's one idea. Or the idea is, you're working and you're working and you're working, but God has another gift for you, and that's sleep. But whatever might be the the proper interpretation here, it emphasizes the limits on our activity and the limits of our ability to make happen what we want to happen and the ceaselessness and the constancy of God's activity. Now, there is a a break that is so abrupt or a transition that is so abrupt that that some say, oh, these were two, two psalms that were squished together. Uh, Because all of a sudden in verse 3, the psalmist stops and says, Look, look, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. So he stops us in the middle of all this building, of all this building of houses, of, of guarding the city, of all this ceaseless activity, and he says, Look, look at children. And what are these children? Now, these children are something we can overlook. We can overlook children in our ceaseless activity, in all of our building, in all of our our careers, in all of our our enterprises, in all of our strivings. Children can be overlooked. And so far from being a a, a badly squished together two songs that talk about two different things, it's very appropriate That in the midst of this ceaseless activity of humanity, he says, time out, look at children and remember what children are. And he says that children are an inheritance. Now, what's an inheritance? Let's think about that. A heritage or an inheritance. An inheritance is a grant from one generation to another generation. 
So children, all, all from the get-go here, the, the description of children is a description of a grant that, that passes on in time, that, that goes from one generation to another generation. That's what children are. Children are a grant from one generation as a gift to the next generation. They're also a reward. Verse 3, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. So they are a reward, and they are a reward specifically delivered by and through those who have wombs, which are women. Now, what do they become? Verses 4 and 5. And here there, there is an image, uh, two images actually. First image is arrows. Arrows in the hands of a warrior. And uh, these are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. A quiver is a, a case to hold arrows. And it says, Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. What is the saying? What are children? They are in heritage. They are a reward. They are also strength to the family. They're the ones who defend the family. They're the ones who are the strength of the family. Particularly as the, as the parents become uh, weaker and weaker with age, the children become the strength of the family and they also become the protection of the family. Verse 5, He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Now the gate was where transactions took place in the cities. This was the, this was the assembly room. This was the court, uh, court room. This is where you would accost somebody if you wanted to, to present a legal claim against him. And, and this saying that when the man shows up in court, as it were, in the public assembly, surrounded by all these strapping sons, that that man is protected from abuse. So what are children? An inheritance, a reward, strength, protection. Now, until recently, until recently, all over the world and in all times, people considered children to be a gift. And in some places in the world, to this day, people consider children to be a gift. But in our part of the world, there have been some technological developments and societal developments that have changed our thinking. Now, um, there's a big debate about whether technology is neutral or whether it has its, its tendencies, but certainly what happens is we create technology, and that technology in and of itself may be neutral, uh, but at the same time that technology begins to affect how we function. We all can think of the, the smartphone. Has that, has that changed the way that we as humans operate? Yes. Is the smartphone good or bad? Well, it, it may be neutral in terms of morally, but has it affected us for good and for evil? I think we can see that it has. And what are the technologies that have changed our perspective on children in the West? Well, the first was the birth control pill that was introduced in 1960. And that pill did something. It didn't start it, but it accelerated very, very rapidly the divorce between marriage and sex and also the divorce between marriage and reproduction. And then, 13 years later, the legalization of abortion on demand 
made children a choice not only before conception, but it turned children into a choice even after those children were conceived. And our language has changed. Our language has changed about pregnancy and about children. Now we hear talk about the risk of pregnancy and how we need to protect ourselves. That kind of language indicates that there's something bad against which we need to protect ourselves. And to the point where sometimes when people get pregnant, a woman gets pregnant, people will say, and at least to themselves, ask rude questions about, oh, did they mess up? Was there a mistake there? And so you see how this technology has changed how we think about children and other things. We delight in our modern comforts and in our modern conveniences to the point where we begin to see children no longer as benefits, but as burdens. And then finally, our dependence on government or on our employer in times of sickness, unemployment, and retirement has made children seem unnecessary for our well-being. I have a friend who's a missionary in Japan, and he has eight children. They're all grown now. Eight children. He raised eight children in Japan, one of the most expensive countries in the world, on a missionary salary. And he also did this. When it came time for his kids to go to college, he emptied out his annuity. He had an annuity from the mission agency. He emptied it out. He didn't take a loan. He emptied it out, and he helped pay for his children's education. But there was a catch. He said, now, if I'm ever not able to take care of my needs, well, what's my retirement policy? Eight children. (laughs) And we look at that, and we might say, from our modern perspective, how irresponsible to pass that burden onto his children. When I heard that, I thought, how biblical for the parents to look after their children expecting that their children would then look after them if they need to. Now, this is one of the most hard-working men I know. I don't think he'll ever retire. He'll probably work till he drops. But he has, a, he has a policy. He has an annuity that's better than whatever that was he gave away to his children. Now, we have gotten to the point where for the first time in history, for the first time in history, whole societies especially those that are wealthier, are committing suicide slowly by not having enough children even to replace them. Now, whole societies have been wiped out before. They were wiped out by plague. They were wiped out by famine. They were wiped out by warfare. Whole peoples have disappeared. But up to this point, this is, this is the first time in history where whole societies are threatening their own existence by not having children. Because children have become an inconvenience. Children have become a burden. Children have become an expense. Children have become a nuisance instead of the blessing that God has given to us as families. Now, I want to read a list to you. This is a list of the countries and territories that are doing this. 
that are not even replacing themselves, and so their populations will go down, if not for immigration. And it goes from the the, the least productive to the most, but even the most productive on, li- on this list still is not replacing itself. Leading, leading the least productive is South Korea, then we have our own Puerto Rico, followed by Hong Kong, then Singapore, then Macau, then Malta, then Spain, then Moldova, then Bosnia and Herzegovina, then Italy, then Ukraine, then Cyprus, then Greece, then Luxembourg, then Finland, Mauritius, United Arab Emirates, Japan, Portugal, St. Lucia, Belarus, Poland, Austria, Croatia, Serbia, North Macedonia, Canada, Channel Islands, Switzerland, Thailand, Slovak Republic, Hungary, Bulgaria, Norway, Germany, Russian Federation, Liechtenstein, Netherlands, Bermuda, Latvia, Slovenia, Albania, Cuba, Barbados, Belgium, Lithuania, Chile, Estonia, United Kingdom, China, Curacao, Czech Republic, Iceland, New Zealand, Trinidad and Tobago, United States, Azerbaijan, Brazil, Denmark, Australia, Montenegro, Ireland, Bahamas, Costa Rica, Armenia, Romania, Sweden, Colombia, St. Martin, Bruni, Dar Salaam, Qatar, Maldives, France, St. Vincent and the Grenadines, Aruba, North Korea, Nepal, French Polynesia, New Caledonia, Uruguay, Bhutan, Jamaica, Bahrain, Bahrain, Antigua and Barbuda, Greenland, Kosovo, Malaysia, Bangladesh, El Salvador, Vietnam, Georgia, Virgin Islands, Grenada, Turkey, Kuwait, and Lebanon. All those countries and territories, they're not replacing themselves. And in Japan, one university has a clock. They've already started the doomsday clock. And, and, and it's the countdown to when the last Japanese person will exist on the face of the earth at the current rate. Now, that's, that is, that's our modern world. And notice that these are mostly the wealthier countries, the ones that can afford to have children. And look also that these many of these countries are the historically Christian countries. You'll notice that not many of these Christians on the list are Muslim countries, because the Muslims continue to consider children to be a gift from God. Now, if Christians buy into this unbiblical view of children, and by the way, if all of the peoples of all of these countries disappear from the face of the earth, and they're populated by people from other places on earth, well, the earth may not lose much. They, they might not miss us much. But if the Christian church buys into this mentality, this unbiblical mentality about children, the church will diminish along with society. And another concern, a denigration of sons makes the gospel seem less amazing than it is. You see, what is the gospel message? The gospel message is a message about a father giving that which is most precious to him, his own son, for the blessing of others. And the reason that that message is so amazing is that the the father gave the the greatest. He, He gave the maximum. He gave that was most precious But inasmuch as we denigrate sons and we hear the story about a father who gave his sons in a society where sons are are given up, they're they're foregone and, and they're aborted out of existence, then this message might not seem so amazing after all. 
Now we turn from we turn from that that biblical view of children, and I've I've spent perhaps too much time contrasting it with an unbiblical view of children. But getting back to the text, the biblical view of children, a heritage, a reward, the strength, the protection of the family, we also find out that it's the happiness. It's the happiness of the family. Verse 5 of chapter of Psalm 127, Blessed is the man. You'll find the word blessed in, in here in this, uh, this psalm. And also you'll find it three more times or four more times in Psalm 128. But they're two different words. The first word in, in Psalm 127, verse 5, and verse 1 and 2 of Psalm 128, we could translate as happy. Happy. Uh, happy is the man who fills his quiver with them. And then Psalm 128, Happy is the man who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be happy, and it shall be well with you. Heritage, reward, strength, protection, happiness as well. Now, watch how these psalms move. Psalm 127 moved from the city to the family to the man. Psalm 128 moves from the man to the family to the mountain to the city to the nation. And so it builds on the man and it's the man who fears the Lord. And this is a call to men, also to women, to fear the Lord. Happy is everyone who fears the Lord. And what's it mean to fear the Lord in practical terms? Verse 1 says, to walk in His ways. To stand in awe of the Lord, enough to walk in His revealed ways. And what will that man experience? It says, you shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You remember back in Genesis, the labor of the man's hands was cursed. And now that that man who fears the Lord, there's a, a reversal of that curse on the labor of his hands. He will eat from the fruit of his hands. And then he also says, you shall be happy and it shall be well with you. And one of the manifestations of that happiness of the man who fears the Lord is that he raises a family that fears the Lord as well. Verse 3, your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall be the man, shall be the, the man be blessed who fears the Lord. And here's the other word in verse 4. The man is blessed who fears the Lord. Now, uh, here are two staples of that region of, of Israel. Uh, you have the, the vine and you also have the olive tree. And it says that that's, that's how the family will be in the innards of the household there around the table. That will be the happiness. So how does this work? The man who fears the Lord raises a family that fears the Lord. The result of God's favor flows out from Zion, verse 5. The Lord bless you from Zion. And then the favor that God shows to His dwelling in Zion brings prosperity to the whole city of Jerusalem. Verse 5, The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. And then God's favor extends to the next generation. Verse 6, May you see your children's children. And then finally, peace or well-being or shalom comes to the whole nation. The man who fears the Lord, the family that fears the Lord, blessing from God's dwelling to the city and then to the next generation of grandchildren and then to the nation as get bigger and bigger and bigger. This blessing, this happiness, this well-being, this shalom. But where does it start? It starts with the man who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways. 
and raises his family in that way. Now, um, some moderns, some moderns, they um, object to this psalm, these two psalms, because they say they just value women for their wombs, for their fertility. And in answer to that, I would say this. Well, we need to read the rest of the Bible to see how exalted women are in the Bible from the very story of creation all the way to the the redemption of of women as co-heirs with men in the kingdom of God. That's the first thing. But the other thing is this. It is no small thing. It is no small thing to be biologically equipped to receive, to carry, to bear, and to nourish children. When, 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 I, when I have learned about, and I have a, 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 gyne, a gynecologist daughter, and she's explained some of this physiology to me, when she explains some of this stuff to me about how a woman's body functions, I want to say, no way. You're making that up. That's like superhuman powers here. No, no human body could possibly do what you are describing. This is an amazing thing that the, the woman's body is, is equipped to do. Now, not in every case does it function as, as designed, but it is no small thing. Therefore, it's a, another symptom of our worldly mindset that we do not offer honor to women for their almost miraculous ability to receive and to carry and to bear and to nourish children. And so, far from being denigrating to women, this psalm, on the contrary, I'd say those are denigrating to women who do not recognize this amazing capacity that God has given to their bodies. When Adam wanted to honor his wife, what did he call her? He called her what? Eve. He called her life giver. Life giver. He wasn't denigrating her. He's saying, you have something. You have something that I don't have. You are life giver. And so what, what do we do with these Psalms? Well, we start where we are and we move out to the nations. And that's what happens in the Bible. We start where we are and we move out to the nations. And we frequently hear in our church, you've heard me say this many times, what are we about as a church? Why are we here? We're to take the gospel to the nations. We want the shalom of the nations. That's why we exist. We exist for the, the well-being of the nations, the shalom, the, the blessing of the nations. And how do we do that? One of the ways we do that is by taking the gospel to the nations. We talk about that a great deal. The other way we do that is by having children, either biologically or by adoption, and raising them up in the fear of the Lord, and then sending them out into the world for the shalom of the city, for the shalom of the nation, for the shalom of the world. So, this is also our calling as Christians. Inasmuch as we are able to, it's not always possible, but as we are able to, to have children, to raise them in the fear of the Lord. Why? For our own strength, for our own protection, for our own happiness, but also 
It's not just about us. It's also for the blessing of the nations. Now, this is also a community project for the church. This is, this is what the church does. My daughter was in a church, and I have to say I admire. I admire many things about the younger generations. One of the things that the next generation I've seen, not in all cases, but, but there is a, an appreciation for adoption, appreciation for fostering children. And she was in a church where there was a, a great appreciation, and the, the sort of mentality in that church was this. Here are your options, church. You can either have children or foster children, or adopt children, or help those who do. And they, they, they emphasized that it was a, a community project, that the people of God, the community of God, the family of God, receives and nurtures children. So that what? We might send them out into the world for the glory of Christ, and for the blessing of the nation. And you see, when we do this, when we give our children to the world, for the well-being of the world, what are we doing? We're living out the gospel story, aren't we? Because what is the gospel story? It's about a father who gave his son for the well-being of the world. And that son gave his life and rose again from the dead on the third day for the shalom, for the prosperity, for the well-being of all who trust in him. And so we have the opportunity as families and as a church to live out the gospel, taking the message to the ends of the earth and giving our children for the shalom of this world. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you that you sent your son. We hear that many times and we pray that we would never cease to be amazed and if our society no longer values sons, I pray that we, O oh God, would not, would not denigrate sons or daughters. That we would understand the great value of a son, of a daughter. And therefore value and stand in amazement at the fact that you gave your son, your only son, for us. To make us sons and daughters. And I pray, O oh God, that your people, that we would not fall into the trap of our world's values. We read earlier that our world is passing away and these values are suicidal and causing our world to pass away. We pray, O oh God, that we would not imbibe these values, but, but understand your plan for the family, understand what role children have, and receive them as gifts from you. And Father, I pray for those who are able to have children, that you would give them the children that you want them to have, that they'd be able to receive those children and nurture those children in the fear of the Lord. And those of us who are in another stage not in a stage able to have more children or any children, that you would give us the grace of investing in the ones you give to our church, that they might be for our strength, the strength of our families, the strength of our church, for our protection, for our happiness. And also, God, not just for our own, but for the well-being and the shalom of the whole world and the glory of Christ.
And we pray this in his name. Amen.